Creative Connectors, a podcast for curious minds. My name's Vicky Keeler, and I'll be chatting to the makers and creators who aim to connect and inspire through the platform of festivals. We'll be delving into how they show up in the world, why they do what they do, their journey, inspiration, and everything in between. So sit back and enjoy the chat, because who knows where these conversations are going to go. And if this is your kind of podcast, please subscribe, follow, share with friends, and get involved and give some feedback. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking to Mark Swartz, who is the founder of Feather Edge. Welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on for a chat, Mark. Thanks, Vicky. We met at Burning Seed um, last year, but maybe we could start by um, talking to when you first interacted with festivals, like what was the first festival that you ever went to? Um, I think I started going to day festivals when I was still in high school. I think I went to Home Bake mm-hmm. and Big Day Out festivals like that. Um, and then I think Peach Ridge was probably the first kind of uh, lifestyle festival, I suppose you could call it, which went over a yep. few days and had talks and music and art and, and the whole kit and caboodle, which is kind of, I suppose, the kind of festival we're talking about here a little bit more. And how did that lead, I guess, um, for you into working within the industry? Because, you know, um, Feather Edge uh, creates, obviously, um, installations and experiences for people, whether that's at festivals and on more of a commercial level. And you've also kind of run your own festival at some point. So, So when did that kind of, yeah, transition happen from going and just being a punter at a festival to then it being something that was part of your career, really. Yeah, I think it, it definitely started at Peach Ridge Festival, um, going there and, and mm-hmm. being involved in the setup and being involved in the um, actual installation of the festival, I suppose. And um, yeah, it just it was a really obvious thing to me that I got so much more out of the festival by being involved in the in the lead up beforehand. And um and I sort of later started to realize that I actually enjoyed that setup and, and the involvement um, before the festival, almost more than the festival itself. Yeah, being, being there, seeing it turn from a paddock into this amazing you know, wonderland for, for three or four days was kind of mind-blowing for me and, um, and, and became the, the real core of the excitement that was involved in the festival itself. And then, you know, that sort of sparked, um, that Pizza Ridge sparked the Loco Festival when we we realised we spent most of our time setting up our own camp and then most of the festival at our own camp. Um, four of us decided to create our own festival and figured we don't need to deal with the uh, the rest of the crowds and, and all of the driving there and getting in and getting out and all the rest. So we set up Loco Festival, which was sort of a direct... Um, move out of Pizza Ridge. And what was that festival all about for anybody who, yeah, didn't get to experience um, it? Loco Festival was in a similar vibe to, I suppose, the other lifestyle festivals at that time, but we had a real focus on DIY culture. So everyone, there wasn't a huge program. We didn't get, we didn't pay any acts for the first couple of years. Um, it was really about people bringing their own fun and bringing their own things to the festival. So whether it was their own talents as a DJ or a, or a band, musicians, 
um, to art installations that they would just bring and set up. There was no programming of that. Um, to, you know, crazy uh, barges that floated out on the dam and everyone took part in. It really took shape once everyone actually got there. There wasn't a whole lot beforehand. And did you kind of like face any challenges or anything like that in the sort of creation yeah. of your own yeah. festival? <laughs> There's lots of challenges. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> um, the challenges are, you know, are mostly exciting as well because so much of it is collaboration. Mm. So Loco Festival was, there was a core crew of four of us, um, which was Erica Boucher, Freya Dixon and Charmaine Tung and, um, and myself. And, and then we had, you know, hundreds of people who really came up and, and set up beforehand and were a part of bringing, bringing the fun of the, the festival itself. And I think most of the real challenges came out of um, personal interactions between people and, you know, being quite young and idealistic and then managing such a, such a huge project. You know, there's all sorts of characters that get involved. And, yeah everyone's got their own idea of of what it should be but um yeah i think overall we did all right with it <laughs> we had we definitely had challenges with the like broader community with the first site that we were at we didn't have any community engagement at all and um that became very stressful just because you know we we were really pissing people off <laughs> in the in the neighborhood and and that didn't really sit well with with any of us as organizers and so what did you do then for i guess taking that as a learning from the first year did you go into your second year really wanting to be a lot more um open and transparent with the local community about the event and um trying to get them as involved as possible or across what you were doing as possible so that it was a lot easier yes. to run yeah it was a huge turning point. The, the second year, we, we moved sites, partly because of neighbor complaints and, and because mm -hmm. we didn't have that connection. Um, and the owner of the property that we moved to um, was very involved in the local community and was on the tourism board and, and knew all of his neighbors and spoke to them regularly. Um, and having him on board with the with us doing this festival and talking to everyone in the local community was a huge asset and then on top of that we raised money for the local csg group the anti-coal seam gas group and um and locked the gate alliance and had someone someone from their group come and speak at the festival itself um and a whole bunch of them come down on new year's eve which is when we ran the festival um and sort of see what we were doing and, and be involved in it, uh, it's sort of changed the whole dynamic with the community from it being, you know, these these weirdo hippies who just drove in in their vans and then made heaps of doof music and um, and drove out again four days later. Um, it became something that encouraged all of these great interactions at the local shop um, and encouraged interactions with locals to be invited and to be to be involved and it took a lot of I think a lot of the fear out of it and it took the our fear from the locals as well out of it yeah I think a lot of the time you know when when people do have fear it's often just around the unknown 
you know, like somebody hasn't experienced something before. And um, I think, you know, the the towns which do have festivals close by, um, it, it does put a pressure on a town, especially when it's a larger festival. But um, I think that's where, you know, consciously festival um, directors, you know, do work with those communities to help them understand how it can benefit them and uh, yeah, put procedures and processes in place to make it as streamlined as possible so that, you know, it's an, an enjoyable event for, for everybody, whether you are actually there or you're just kind of close yeah, by when right. a festival is happening. Um, I know that that festival kind of uh, only ran for, was it three years? Yeah, it ran for three years and then yeah. had a few spin-off iterations, but yeah, there were three, three main years that we did it. And what kind of brought it to a close? Because I'm sure everybody, you know, anybody who's been to a festival has probably had a, a pipe dream at some point of creating their own festival and you've actually done it and, um, you know, you've, you've kind of lived and breathed it. So what was that kind of um, change for you guys in, you know, choosing to actually end the festival? Has it just, had it just run its course or yeah, what was that, what was that process for you? It was a, it was a huge combination of factors. It certainly wasn't one one thing that, that drew it to an end. Um, different people from our core group pulled out for different reasons, and um, one of yeah one of the main reasons was that we were losing interest in a little bit. I think the creative pursuit of setting it up was what was really exciting to all of us. And by the fourth year, we were sort of we we started planning, and and we all sort of felt that we needed something we needed to change it up we needed something that was different um, there was also a real feeling that for a festival to continue it has to grow in size and in numbers um, and that wasn't really something that anyone wanted we we had a size whereby you know almost everybody there was a friend of a friend um, and there was there was a real connection and sense of community that was happening there and to grow it larger than that seemed like we would lose lose that feeling um, mm -hmm. and that wasn't really what we we didn't really want to put on a festival for a thousand people we didn't know um, we definitely wanted to do it for our friends and for the people that we knew would look after the place look after each other that that all of that trust in the people that were actually at the festival took a lot of the stress of it off our hands um, mm. and there was also yeah, there were also just factors of, I suppose, growing up a little bit and seeing more of the risk that was involved in running a festival that size um, or having a having a yeah. large group of people. And they are, a, you know, festivals can be viewed as a, as a high-risk activity or a risk activity. And, um, yeah, I think none of us really wanted to take that on, <laughs> hanging over our heads. Mm. Well, it... Yeah, well, it comes with the responsibility, right? When you are bringing people together, um, even if it is to, you know, have a beautiful shared experience, etc., there are risks that come with it, and there is a lot of planning involved, and yeah, responsibility. So, I mean, I can definitely understand, you know, why individuals would make choices to then say, actually, our intention behind this, um, you know, was for a closer-knit community and you know not everybody has a desire to grow a festival to be the biggest festival ever um 
were there any kind of key learnings or things that you took from that experience that um yeah you've uh, you've taken on into the rest of your career or just yeah gave you some really great learnings for life yeah for sure i mean it was an intense period of learning <laughs> because just you know there was there was so much <laughs> happening and i think part of i suppose that risk and that stress is that you actually develop out of it um that's where it's a good thing i don't i definitely don't speak about the risk as as just being a negative fear um it was part of of what made it so beneficial to everyone involved um, i got a, i learned a lot about collaborating with people and and how to make that work a festival is intensely collaborative it's yeah it's sort of almost strange to speak about loco without the other people who were part of it here um because it was it was just completely shared it was a it was a very collaborative thing there's no individual can put on a festival um and uh, yeah no matter how much they try it's, it's always going to flop there's just far too many moving parts um so that side of it was was very cool i think um i definitely learned i mean there's so there's so many learnings <laughs> sorry to your point a person can't do it on their own and i think that's why festivals have this um like sense and um, drive and foster this sense of community and bringing people together because um yeah for any festival to happen you need different people with different types of skills and even different types of vision to help bring something to life um even if there is almost like a, a common vision or goal that you're trying to achieve there's so many different moving parts to make something enjoyable for you know everybody involved so um yeah i think that's to me the the really interesting thing is this sort of network of individuals and why i kind of wanted to create this podcast really because everybody has different backgrounds different viewpoints on the world different experiences yeah but a brought together and tied together in some shape or form through festivals that's because if you if you have one person who's, who's uh you know one person or even or even four people at the at the top of the festival who are organizing it and curating all of the different parts that go into it it's never going to be as interesting as when you've got five thousand people who are all bringing their own little something um, and using that little something to enhance the festival, the, the, the space, the creative space that can be made out of a festival that fosters that amongst all of the, um, all of the people going is mm. pretty incredible. And that's it, you know, I think they're very much a platform to, um, you know, encourage people to create or um, see things in a different way or think of it differently and you know a lot of the time they're trying to encourage people to take something from that experience and and share it beyond the festival or take it into their everyday life um, and I think that's why they can have such a meaningful and long-lasting impact um, what's your kind of view on the role that festivals play in in culture and society today um Ooh, that's a big question. To me, um, I, I mean, I can only really speak from my experience. I don't know what the broader um, role is, but in in my experience, the role that they play in my life is certainly as a kind of reset and a way of 
um, really entering or stepping. It's it's both stepping out of a mundane day to day and stepping into something that is like so far from reality and so far from, um, you know, routine even, I suppose. And like for me that that has been, yeah. that's been a really fabulous thing to discover in my life um, that there is this opportunity to, to take a weekend, take four days out and um, and really step into something that doesn't look or feel or sound um, at all like the rest of my life. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly refreshing. And I, and I know that that's, that's the case for a lot of friends and, and people who I've parted with who, you know, have even more stressful jobs than I do or play incredibly important and incredibly um, stressful roles within the community, um, doctors and lawyers and, and all the like. And those people need a release. And if festivals can be that release, that's an incredible offering yeah. to the world that they can that they can have exactly and yeah it's almost like this um it's bizarre because you almost step out of the reality that we know and you realize like why yeah. is that our reality <laughs> kind of like you're like oh this other world can exist and then you sort of almost like look back on your kind of everyday life and you're like oh like we we create that life but we, we've also got this experience at a festival, which can also just feel like an amazing life. And, you know, to your point, it's a release from, you know, what we find ourselves in. And um, I think it's also a really great point that you mentioned, you know, I've got friends in really stressful jobs as well, you know, whether they're nurses or, you know, um, I think it often, for somebody who isn't a festival goer, when you talk about the diversity of the individuals that go to festivals, sometimes it surprises them. And you're kind of like, why does it surprise you? Like, everybody should be entitled to have that release and be able to get away from the everyday. And yeah, I think it's it's something that everybody should do once in their life. <laughs> Well, I think everybody has a different uh, version of that same thing, you know, whether it's a family holiday going camping or it's, yeah, it's true, the true. holiday house that they go to um, or, you know, or if it's skiing for, for the week, yeah. you know, there's everyone has a different way of, of creating that space for themselves. And I suppose for me and and the community that I'm a part of, you know, festivals are the coming together of a whole bunch of lifestyle elements that that we love it's got music it's got art they've got community they've got camping they've got the australian bush it sort of it all combines into, into one fabulous time in my head <laughs> yeah That's well it's, right. it's almost like a perfect little holiday isn't it but it's a very um <laughs> it's like a, a, ho a holiday on steroids because there's so much that happens in maybe even just like a three to four day period um, are there any like festivals that really resonate for you and yeah you hold very dear to your heart because there's just something about that festival that yeah draws you to it or is a bit different to other things that you've experienced uh yeah of of these lifestyle and diy festivals i think 
um, amongst wide open spaces, uh, regrowth, safari, earth frequency. Um, there's, yeah, that's a small range of, of very excellent festivals that I think have have the right idea and, and the right outlook towards the environment and towards um, the community that they're creating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are, those are definitely my highlights <laughs> of, of probably too many festivals that I've been to. <laughs> I know, I can't actually like count the amount of festivals I've been to, I've tried to do it before and I lose count. When you talk about that lifestyle festival, is that something that you would like to see more of? in terms of the overall yes. <laughs> landscape of yes, festivals? Yes, definitely. It's, um, and I think they're creeping into mainstream festivals as well. And by, I suppose, just to create some terms around it, I suppose I mean mm-hmm. mainstream festivals, so your Splendor in the Grass and Big Doubts and those sorts of festivals. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the, the thing that, the, thing, the core thing that probably separates them is that those festivals are often big business. We're talking about, you know, people that are maybe they're not profiting that much, but it's but it's definitely run as a business where you have a, a series of, of core organizers and they'll be on a salary for half the year um, and so on and so forth. Whereas the more lifestyle festivals I'm talking about are often done not for profit or for a very small margin, but the people organizing them organize them because they also love going to them and go love going to festivals like that. Um, and I think that there's a lot of uh, elements from those lifestyle festivals that creep into the mainstream festivals and then from there creep into our broader society. So my best my best example of that is I think it's uh, Folk Rhythm Life Festival started using plastic cups that everyone who went to the bar at their festival bought a plastic cup which they then could refill over the course of the festival instead of having multiple cans or uh, disposable plastic cups and all the rest that just get thrown away and that idea then gets picked up by a series of other um, festivals lifestyle festivals and eventually makes its way into more mainstream festivals and, you know, and the result, and, and then, you know, people are exposed to that idea, which then obviously becomes the keep cup movement, you know, and there's, those ideas are really fostered and I suppose trialed in the festival first and the festival environment. And when they work, they get adopted further and further. Um, and I think the same goes for glass, you know, that like, I remember, I suppose when I started going to festivals, this idea that you weren't allowed to bring glass into a lifestyle festival was was first kind of coming about. And, and it was mostly probably because, you know, someone smashes a glass on the dance floor and, and you've got you've got a dangerous situation. But that idea and, you know, when we started going to festivals, you could really only get uh, 4X gold and BB in the can. And now that's obviously completely changed and, and that culture has, has taken off. I think all the festivals have adopted that same concept as well as a whole bunch of, you know, pretty much any bar that's in Sydney that's open on a Friday, Saturday night have also adopted that concept. 
And that's the thing, like it's come through quite a bit in the conversations that I've been having with different individuals, you know, who have different roles at festivals in that they are this hub for innovation and trialing things because they are almost like this mini subset of society who come together, that's why it provides that perfect um, opportunity to test out those systems, like, you know, like you're saying, the keep cup and stuff. And once you know it can it can work, that's where it can then be applied to, to broader society. And I think, you know, often people don't realize that that sort of innovation comes, you know, to society through festivals. It's not to say only innovation like that comes from festivals, but a lot of it is trialed and tested there. Um, and I think, yeah, people just don't often associate that with festivals. They just think, oh, yeah, people having a good time. And, and that's because the, the, it's the way that the media portrays it. And that's why I, I, I personally feel quite, you know, strongly. And it's driven me to do the podcast because I, I think that mm. um, it's, an, it's an unfair portrayal of yeah, what of festivals course. bring to the world um, yeah. if you only looked at mainstream media. In terms of, I guess, how that has... Yeah, led you into um, Feather Edge. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you do through that work and, and how that came about? Yeah, so I suppose when I started my journey into the festival world, going to festivals and then and getting involved in them, getting involved in the building of them, um, I, I was drawing, I've always been into creative arts and installation, and I was very much drawn to this idea of producing artworks for people to experience and people to touch mm -hmm. and to be in their physical space and ex be able to explore. Um, and festivals were the, the perfect grounds for that, really, because you've got thousands of people who are there solely for the purpose of enjoying themselves and exploring and they're coming with an open mind already. Um, as an emerging artist, it was a lot easier to get a proposal into a festival to make something that was bigger than I'd ever made before or the collective I was working with had ever made before. And because of that fostering and encouraging environment festivals have, we were allowed to do that, which um, <laughs> you know, we'd never be allowed to do that yeah. um, in, the, in the real world, I suppose, or in the, um, you know, in the mainstream world to, to go, oh, we'll make this big public sculpture that really costs $100,000 and no one's going to give that to an emerging artist who's never done anything of that size or scale before. Whereas festivals were uh, the perfect grounds for experimenting with all of that and uh, having a go at project managing these much bigger projects. And some of them didn't work out, some of them flop, some of them are, are a struggle um, the whole time. But it doesn't really matter, like no one's ever no one's there to critique and to, um, you know, and to complain about a public sculpture at a festival. So it was a, it was the perfect incubator for me. It's about, and then, it's about showing up. Yeah, that's right. It's about showing up, and you know, maybe one or two people have a really amazing experience with the thing that you've made, and, and that's enough. Um, and so that really that those experiences and that that space encouraged me and gave me a lot more, a lot of the confidence to then go on and start building, I suppose, my own company that is doing public large-scale sculpture, um, outdoor sculpture events work, 
um, and also a whole lot of ex experiential building projects. Um, yeah. And what's been a kind of key highlight from, yeah, I know obviously Loco and having your own festival and creating that probably is one, but has there been any uh, pieces of work that will always kind of make you smile and be like, oh God, yeah, that was a, a one that I will always look back on? Ah, uh, yeah. It's hard to pick one. <laughs> well, you've got the mic. You can talk about as many as you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Temple of Science stands out as a, as a highlight. It was a collaboration with Isaac Gallagher, Owen Brazier and Alana Tracy. And um, Alana sort of had this idea to make a temple devoted to science. There's often at these festivals, there's a lot of pseudo um, pseudo Buddhism and, and I suppose Eastern religious culture seeping its way in. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there's always a village of the the temple to yoga and the, you know, the Shakti temple or whatever it is. And, um, and we decided that we were going to devote a temple solely to logic and scientific research. And <laughs> I suppose the opposite of what all of those other temples stood for. Well, it's um, good to have different perspectives. Yeah, that's right. And anyway, it was, it was a little bit tongue in cheek and we, we got a grant from Rainbow Serpent Festival to, to build this thing. And we were a bit upset when they didn't put us right next to all of the other temples, but it was probably for the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we ended up building what was the most logical uh, structure. We, we sort of started from the point of if a scientist were to design a building, what would it look like? And we decided it had to be a pyramid because it's the strongest structure. And then um, yes, we well, built I'm a big fan of pyramids. Pyramid out of hexagons, which were very fashionable at the time, with the geodesic dome. And um, and Owen Brazier had a whole series of LED lights. This is when programming LEDs to do animations was, we, you know, we'd never heard of anything before like it. And um, and inside we had a series of artists do. Um, images that were inspired by science or biology or you know the whole range yeah cool. and podcasts on science talking in inside there and owen was doing scientific experiments um for people who are, anyone who would watch really and um yeah it just became this kind of kooky idea um it sort of took on a life of its own and and at the festival it did something that none of us, I don't think we quite expected, um, but it became a really sobering, um, safe space, <laughs> um, mm. which, which seems like it's not quite the point of, of what you want at a festival. And a lot of the other installations are there to be trippy and to be, you know, really out there and wild. Um, but we had created this space that was all built out of solid plywood and I mean, it was large, but it, um, it was just lit with normal, you know, warm lighting and had these interesting images all over the place that weren't confronting necessarily, um, but had something to, to engage with. And, and we toured it to a few festivals and, and it always attracted I suppose people who just needed a little refuge from the rest of 
what was going on at the festival. It was a really passive space where they could mm. they could sit and absorb whatever it was. They didn't have to engage physically. They didn't have to dance. They didn't have to clap or you know experience something constantly. It was um, yeah. It was it was a very different space to everything else that was going on there. And that was you know that was a realization mm. that it was actually a really great offering to the festival environment. Well, exactly. You know, they're places with a lot of overstimulation, mm. um, you know, and it's it's not to say that uh, over, overstimulation is bad, but you do need a reprieve when you're at festivals, especially when it's a multi-day event. You know, you need to be able to um, digest what has happened. Um, in one of my other episodes, I, I chatted to uh, Pat Holmes, who created the hammock temple which is again a space for you know people to take time out and process the day and things like that and I think you know spaces like that are really important and I don't think festivals could could really exist without them um because I think you, you need that in between space from your campsite and and like the dance floor and, and everything else that might be going on and are those kind of spaces that you've created since like more of those um, areas that are for people to yeah take some time out without necessarily kind of be mind blown by a visual etc uh yeah it's definitely what we've been doing with solaris um at, mm. at burning seed festival we have a we have a huge collective yep. and i won't try and name everybody um and and the core of our our installation in our collective is is a solar cinema that runs in the evenings and Again, it's it's a passive space. It's somewhere where you can sit, just absorb um, a film. And uh, you know, the, the the fun part that's come out of it is that I think nostalgia films and cartoons have been the real winner. You know, the, the most packed it's ever been in the Solaris Cinema is when we played Aladdin. And it, and was, it gets you know, it, it gets really busy. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, it does. That it, honestly it blew me away because like camping with you guys this year and being part of Solaris, I was like, hmm, like solar powered cinema. That's a really cool concept. And I was like, are people gonna want to sit and watch a film? And I was just yeah, I was blown away. Like so many people wanted to come in and watch films. I think it was like maybe The Lion King or something. <laughs> I can't remember what it was that was on, but I feel like it was some Disney movie and it was like so popular. And I was like wandering around giving out popcorn. Um, I have to say one of my personal favorites was, I got like really hooked one night after I came back and it was like those, I've forgotten the name. It's like a weird long German name where they debunk science stuff. Oh yeah, great. I got absolutely (laughs) I can't remember the name of it, but I got lost in that. And I was like, I just want to watch more and more and more. And, um, and yeah, it was great. I absolutely loved kind of Solaris and, and what it brought to Seed. Yeah. How long, how long have, um, I guess you guys been doing that? Uh, I think three years, four years. We've been doing it for four years. <laughs> yeah. And you just take that to Seed, is it? Or do you take that anywhere else? Uh, there's been a lot of ideas to take it elsewhere. Um, but the the reality is, like all of these things, there's a lot of work that's involved, um, and we all have busy lives, and it's hard to find the time to actually to actually do that. Well, it's a beautiful family at Solaris, so if anybody goes to Burning Seed, go and check it out. Highly recommend. Yeah. 
I can't emphasize the importance of that passive space enough. I think it's really, it's really crucial. Mm. There's a lot of people who go to festivals and maybe don't have the same confidence um, as others do. And also don't have, you know, people, there's a lot of introverts who go to festivals and, um, and there's a, there's times where you need to be away from the active, um, engagement that's, that's constantly bombarding you. And it's far more exciting to get into festivals to, in order to run a drum and bass stage and, and, you know, show up with some lasers and all the a big sound system and all the rest, but having a passive space and having a space that's, that's safe that people can, um, retreat to is I think really at the core of what makes festivals safe and, and um, encouraging for people to come again. Mm. And they're really places where you'll find yourself connecting with people as well. Like it's not to say you can't connect on the dance floor with individuals, but I think when you've got those spaces where, you know, some, some people might go there just to spend time on their own, but it's often, you know, that like you say, safe space where you can quite easily, you know, get chatting to somebody and then spend some time and then you might go on a, go off an adventure and see something else together. Yeah, those spaces are, are super important um, to encourage people to come together and take some time out. Yeah. Is that something that you would like to see more of at festivals or is there anything else that you would like to see more of? Uh, yeah, definitely. I'd like to see more of that. Um, I think there's, yeah, there's multiple benefits for festivals in having those sorts of spaces. Um, it's not just about people having a, having a nicer time, but it also becomes a kind of check-in space. Um, and mm. when you have multiple spaces like that, you start to mitigate some of the risks that are involved in um, elements of festival going like drug taking and, you know, or it might be it's just even people didn't show up with enough warm clothes for the night and um, and having a space where they can grab a blanket is um, is all they need to, you know, not get a cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it does get bloody cold at night, even <laughs> in Australia. You definitely do need those layers. In terms of what the future for Feather Edge looks like, have you got a a vision on where you want to take it or what you want to be doing? I know probably a bit hard um, given the world at the moment, but um, prior to COVID or what you're thinking about for the future, yeah, is, is there any kind of grand ambition or are you just kind of feeling your way through it? Uh, I suppose the grand ambition the whole time has been to take uh, that festival creativity, the, the experience of, of a new space into the day-to-day -day world. So, and public sculpture is the most obvious way to do that for me, um, to take something that, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not something that people have a one, one night experience with, and, you know, maybe they lie under the stars and look at this sculpture for hours. Um, but it might be that a public sculpture goes into a park that, you know, a few hundred people walk past every single day and whether they like it or not, they're engaging with that sculpture. Um, and engaging with that with that object, and um, yeah, I want to be a part of that. I want to see the aesthetic um, mm. of creativity and um, and innovation really becoming pervasive through our cities um, and through our public spaces and into our day to day lives. And and I think yeah, 
and public sculptures the way to do that. And yeah, I'd love to see Feather Edge making and designing more and more of those pieces and for them to be made really well so that they last the test of time um, and that, you know, they have an intrinsic value just in their, in their construction. And have you done much work, um, I guess, in that space with communities at the moment? There's, we've done multiple installations and public sculptures that have gone out into, into the space that you know, people occupy um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, one good example is we worked for an artist uh, by the name of Tony Albert on the current Biennale of Sydney. And um, the, we made essentially a geodesic dome as a shade house for a whole bunch of natives in which people could um, plant their intentions. And the structure itself has inspired multiple people to get in touch with me and say, well, we want this as a, as a permanent thing or something similar to it to be in our courtyard or, you know, uh, in, a, in a personal space as well. So yeah, that's, beautiful. Yeah. And that's it, it can have such an impact um, on individuals are it's, it's interesting when you think about how art has historically been consumed and it's, you know, over time primarily been through galleries, whereas now there is that movement to have these bigger pieces in the public space for people to enjoy in the everyday. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of exciting to think about where it could go in the future. And I think there's definitely... Um, an uprising of bigger art festivals happening as well. Mm. Um, I know there's quite a few that happen in different shapes and forms in, in Australia specifically, but, but also around the world and um, yeah, more prominence coming to um, art and that connection uh, for communities outside of festivals and, and, and just uh, public spaces. Um, in, in my worldview, there's, you know, our, our spaces that we occupy and the colour and the shapes and the uh, interactions that we have as we move throughout our cities or, or our towns. Um, the opportunity to have more colour, more interest, more um, out there uh, forms, I think really enhances people's ability to think more creatively, to feel more positive, to um, yeah, to, to feel like there is, is more opportunity in their lives than their mundane. Mm. Um, and to me, that, that experience and, and that idea, ideology is, is so pervasive. You know, if we, look at, if we look at Soviet Russia, where every, you know, everything was built in this concrete, drab, grey, um, we see images of that and we go, oh, I'd hate for our cities to look like that. Um, but then we still miss all of these fantastic opportunities to have more public sculpture um, and to have more creativity that, that forms into our, into our zones. And certain cities like, mm. I mean, Brisbane and Melbourne do it much better than Sydney does, um, and even Perth to an extent. But, you know, a new building um, that has 100 apartments in it, to me, like that... There's so much opportunity in that building to put some colour, to put some interesting form, um, and to put a public sculpture 
right in the foyer or on the ground floor um, it seems to be a must <laughs> you know it's, it's like it's so obvious that to me that the the way that that enhances our lives in ways that are unable to be measured and um, and can't be quantified but the difference mm. is is huge you know to to what you've just said there you you, you can't quantify it but it's so important and you know, it has such a impact on individuals, even sometimes when you might not realize it, you know, it might just make you ponder something a bit differently or feel, you know, color is definitely um, linked and, and that probably is quantifiable, but linked to, you know, like emotion and being able to change people's moods and um, and even things like sound and how, you know, like, I'm somebody who loves listening to, I've got a bit addicted to it actually, um, binaural beats, you know, which are like just certain tempos and things to like relax the body. <clears throat> and I think, yeah, there's so much to be said around um, like music and art and how it can just influence your mind, your body. And we're probably not fully there in understanding and comprehending it all, but we should be doing as much as we can to um, bring that into our lives wherever possible you know whether it's in the home and you know outside um, and I think yeah definitely when there's kind of like new builds and stuff like that there's there's an enormous opportunity for architects and designers to think about the lasting impact that their design is going to have on somebody who's living there and it not just be a box or you know how to fit as many things in um one area as possible is that anything that um like you've looked into yourself to try and apply I, I don't really know how it works but can you apply for grants to do that for new builds or is it really reliant on a developer like having that mindset and, and wanting to reach out to artists to get more of that art brought into yeah the builds that they're producing uh, yeah we've done um a few different projects that have permanent outdoor works that have been working with developers and um, or working with councils um, to be in public spaces. They, it's not something that developers generally tend to um, get excited about. <laughs> um, it's, it's something that, that good councils um, can put the burden onto developers that they have to spend a certain proportion of their overall budget um, or the overall cost of the build on public art. Um, and to me, that's a really excellent way of working it, that there, you know, if you're going to spend, um, you know, $500 million on a, on a fence in your apartment building, you have to drop, you know, 500,000 on a public sculpture that benefits everybody in the community that surrounds that building. Um, to me, that seems like a, a small price to pay to, you know, to really mm. offer something to that, to the broader community um, and to give everybody a reprieve from monstrosity of the building that you've just built, um, you know, something that, that you can engage with and something that maybe has a, has a message or has an idea behind it that reflects the times or it reflects um, what people yeah, how people are feeling. It's almost like you could look at it and say, imagine if every new building that was produced had a piece of art 
um, that inspired hope in some shape or form? Like what could that impact be on a nation, especially during yeah. times like now? Well, I won't say all art, but I think I think most art inspires hope in some way. You know, if if you if you're interacting mm. with a concrete uh, grey wall every day, and then all of a sudden there's a there's a public sculpture and, and someone's put considerable energy and time and money into doing something that's purely for the pleasure of seeing it, <laughs> um, or or walking around it. Um, or for it to just be in that place. Like whether you like it or you don't like the artwork itself doesn't mean that on some level you don't see the value that has gone into making that decision. Mm. Um, This is not a utility object. And by definition, it doesn't have a utility at all. Um, and, And therefore, its only value and its only purpose was to make the people who are walking past it or engaging with it think or feel something um, that, you know, Mm. for the most part is a positive sort of feeling. There's not too much depressing public sculpture that gets put out there. Um, I suppose there's a lot of war memorials, but there's, you know, this is, this is an energy that's gone into (laughs) purely um, like a gift to to the street and to the environment around. Mm. And I think to tie it back into what we were talking about before with festivals being reprieved from daily life, I think public artwork can become a reprieve from, you know, it's it's only a moment, it's not a whole weekend. Um, but if it's a moment in your everyday that's a reprieve mm. from seeing glass and concrete um, to seeing, you know, something that's colorful and beautiful, that's really valuable. And that little reset might be, um, might be a daily routine. Mm. They are a gift. Like I believe festivals are a gift (laughs) to the world as well. While you've got the mic, is there anything else you would like to share or say, um, yeah, any wise words, pieces of advice, or just things that you would like to um, Um, share with the world? I I did want to talk about uh, risk festival environments. and mm-hmm. yeah, and the way that I've kind of come to think about that, yeah, I I think I changed my thinking about um, the risks involved in in festivals a few years ago, where it's it's sort of stopped being about just a fear of of all the things that could go wrong when you have a thousand people in the in the bush, mm-hmm. people get bitten by snakes, they can you know <laughs> there could be a bushfire, there's there could be any number of things. Um, a virus could break out, um, and obviously the the um, unmentionable is drug taking, which is another risky activity. And these all get sort of bundled into a fear of festivals. And I changed my thinking around it to be instead of instead of just fearing all of these risks that are associated with festivals um, and these dangers but instead to transfer that to imagining it as a high-risk activity. So in the same way that skiing is a high-risk activity, um, in the same way that surfing is a high-risk activity, um, there's any number of sports activities that we do on a daily basis, like driving a car um, or motorbike riding, all of those things are, are high-risk activities. and. I think when when things go really wrong at festivals, like a teenager dies of a drug overdose, 
like they are they are traumatic events and i mm-hmm. think that we are shocked by them because they are shocking but we don't have a mindset of understanding the festivals as a risk environment um in the same way that we do about a skiing holiday um yeah and you know this is this is a numbers it's it's often a numbers game but it's also about really yeah shifting it shifting the mindset around what that risk taking is and if people enter the festival environment uh, with the understanding that they're going into a high risk activity um they will take their own precautions they will mitigate their own um risk in their own way mm-hmm. whether it's making sure that they don't camp uh right next to uh an ant mound <laughs> or if you know or they or they make sure that they're getting drug <laughs> testing kits um or or making sure that they're not taking you know that they're controlling the dosage of their drug or wearing sunscreen or wearing or sunscreen water. and making sure if they're going to be out and it's getting dark they take a jumper with them there's there's a whole range of risks that are associated by it but we don't get stifled by those risks in our everyday life to the point where we just avoid it completely or we or we have an intense amount of um i suppose police and ambulance and fire um sort of presence around them um we yeah. we are aware that we're entering risky activities and we mitigate ourselves accordingly does that make sense and part of going part of being part of a festival uh whether that is working for a festival or going as an individual who's bought a ticket part of going through that experience is about taking responsibility for yourself that's right um you know like like when you get in your car if you're a driver you take responsibility for yourself and for any others that are in that car because you're behind that wheel and you're in control. I think it's a very valid point in that there are risks involved um with festivals and it can be a or considered a high risk activity. Um if you want to look at it in through that lens, not not to try and like scare people of festivals, but I think it's a good um comparison to make, you know, like a ski holiday. Albeit you don't necessarily need to take insurance to go to uh, insurance out to go to a festival. Um, and I don't want to have to do that, but you go there and yeah, you, you have to take responsibility for yourself and for your friends. You know, you should all look out for one another, but you should make sure you've got enough water or enough sunscreen and you're eating and you're sleeping. It's like, it kind of sounds weird, but it's the basics, but it's a really good reminder for people that, um, these events can only continue if people do take responsibility and um acknowledge the risks that can happen and the things that could come up and prep themselves for it yeah and for and for festival organizers to be able to mitigate those risks as well um mm. and have control to mitigate those risks yeah um yeah so thank you so much for coming on and having a chat and no talking problem. all things feather edge and art and and whatnot i think it's yeah really great for people to hear different perspectives and you know 
you've you've run a festival, you've uh, executed builds at festivals, and very much in that art space. And I think it's um, yeah, really great and positive messages to share. So thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for the time. Yeah, that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning into Creative Connectors. Hopefully, you enjoyed the chat. If so, please subscribe, share with friends, support the community and tune into the next one.